Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as we're continuing our journey through the book of Psalms. Last week, we started Psalm 51, which is a psalm of confession. There was so much there last week that we decided to take this in two parts. And so we looked at the first nine verses last week, and today we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19. I think it's important just periodically to stop and just reflect on what we're about to do as we open God's Word. Uh, I think sometimes it's very easy just to kind of, this is the next thing in the service and we're kind of moving through the service maybe mindlessly at times. Understand that there's something really powerful about stopping what we're doing, opening our Bibles, having someone come to this desk and proclaim what God has said. It's important that we recognize what we're about to do is not about me. It's actually not about this church. It's not about maybe feelings or how we'd like to feel after the service or what we're about to do next. What this moment is about in time is all of us stopping and recognizing the authority of God's word. And so I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel like in my life, I'm just running from one thing to the next. But there's something really, really special about stopping, slowing down everything that we're doing, and really focusing our minds and hearts on the fact that whenever, whoever stands in front of this pulpit and opens God's word, God is speaking to us. And because God is speaking, we're listening and responding. And so this is a really special time for me as your pastor, for us as people to gather around God's word, to come together as a family and to say, God, we desperately want to hear from you. Amidst the noise that we live our lives in, amidst all the clatter and the clutter of the world in which we live, God, we want you to break through into our minds and our hearts and to speak to us. And so we do this every week, and I don't take time like this every week, but every once in a while, I just want to take a moment like this and say, this is a big deal what we're about to do. It's a huge moment in our week when we come together as a church and say, God, we are submitting ourselves to this. We're remaining quiet. We're listening to you because we believe this is our authority, and we want to hear from you. So that's my prayer for us today is that we would have that kind of humble attitude to hear from the Lord, to hear what he has to say and to come to him with desperation. Last week, as we were in the Word together, we saw in the first time verses of Psalm 51, the necessity of prayers of confession and forgiveness. That confessing our sin to God and being assured of forgiveness is actually meant to be a part of our regular prayer life. And we talked about the reason that that's so important is because it's essential to remind us of our predicament See, without prayers of confession, we live in denial about how serious our sin is. Without confession of our sin before God, we can often forget how dangerous our sin is. We also also talked about how uh, praying for confession and forgiveness gives us assurance. It reminds us that God is going to keep his promise to us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, that nothing can separate us from God's love. 
But what we did not address last week is that though we pray for confession and forgiveness, we pray those prayers, sin still has consequences in our lives. Sin still leaves a a mark, still leaves pain for which we need healing and forgiveness and for cleansing. We know Psalm 51 was written by David who had committed a horrible act. He had abused his power, committed adultery, and then murdered someone to cover it up. But what we may forget is that while David confessed that and God forgave him and gave him assurance of forgiveness, there was still consequence. There was still a wake that his sin created. On the one hand, the baby that was conceived in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba dies. On the other hand, the sword never departs from David's family, right? His children kill each other. One even tries to kill him. One mounts a rebellion. Dysfunction is sown through David's sin. And what I want you to know is that while we have a gracious and good God who forgives and restores us, there are consequences to our sin, just like there were to David's. The, the picture I have in my mind is, is, is what many of you have gone through when you've gone through cancer. Many of you have gone through the pain of cancer and have come out the other side, but, but if you've gone through that, many of you know that, that cancer and typically the treatment that comes with that is incredibly taxing. And while chemotherapy or radiation deals with cancer, there are often side effects, right? People lose their hair, they lose skin tone and color, they become weak. And, and while that cancer is dealt with, there are kind of a side effects that emerge that still have to be addressed as you move forward. What I want you to know is that in Jesus Christ, your sin is ultimately forgiven. Past, present, future. But in the same way that that cancer has side effects, there are side effects to our sin that we still experience in this life. Theologians historically have talked about the consequence of sin in three directions. There's often consequence vertically in that God can feel distant to us or our relationship with God, while it doesn't change in our position, we may not feel as close to God as we did before we committed sin. There are often consequences horizontally. In our relationships with other people, there are consequences and wake that's created because of our sin. But there's also consequence in our lives internally. As maybe the joy of salvation and the excitement about Christ and the closest we feel to Christ is strained or he might feel distant. What I want to show you in verses 10 through 19 is that David is going to pray that God would reverse the effects of his sin in these three areas, internal, horizontal, and vertical. And here's what I want you to know right from the beginning. We too are called to pray this kind of prayer if we're going to really experience true forgiveness and true healing that Jesus offers us through his finished work. I want to show you the first type of reversal in that David prays that God would reverse firstly internal consequences of his sin. Notice first that David prays that God would reverse the internal consequences of of his sin. Look at verse 10 with me. David prays, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
Now, when the Bible talks about heart, it's not talking about your physical heart. It's talking about your desires, what you trust, what you long for. When he talks about spirit here, he's talking about your spirit within you. Proverbs, for example, says that the spirit is the, the wellspring of life. David's saying this is the center of who I am. And God, he's asking God to perform a miracle in his life. God, would you clean my heart? Would you, in other words, David's saying, God, would you redirect my desires away from this sin that I committed back to you? Remember, every time we sin, every form of disobedience in our lives is at the core a form of false worship. The reason I sin and the reason you sin is because we believe in the moment of our sin that what sin offers me is better than what Jesus offers me. And so what happens when I believe that, when I have this sense of worship in my heart for my sin is my desires get directed towards that sin, towards that evil. And what David's praying is, God, would you redirect these desires for you? Would you help me believe again, Lord, very simply, that Jesus is better? Make me want the right things, God, and let me hate the wrong things. Within this, though, he also prays for intimacy with God. He not only prays for his desires internally, he prays for intimacy with the Father. Look at verses 11 and 12. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. David talks about God not taking his Holy Spirit from him and we need to have some precision with which we understand this because it is true that the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament is different than how the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on a warrior like Samson to accomplish a feat and then he would leave. The Holy Spirit would come on a prophet to speak the truth of God's word and he would leave. The Holy Spirit would come on a king to help him rule and make wise decisions. But there was not this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you and I experience as New Testament Christians. What you and I know is that once we place our faith and trust in Christ and God saves us, his spirit comes into our lives to take up residence permanently. And so we have to, we have to filter verse 11 through a clear kind of biblical theology of the New Testament to understand how we should pray this. Because what David's praying through a New Testament lens then is God, would you restore the closeness of my fellowship with you? God, I, I just feel like you're distant from me because of my sin. I feel like I'm kind of estranged from you. God, would you, would you restore the closeness and the, the personal connection I have with you? The reality is this, if you're a believer in Jesus, your position as a child of God never changes. But our sin can affect our experience of the closeness we have with God. Let me illustrate that. I am the son, the firstborn son of Walter Plumley. okay? And there's nothing in the whole wide world I can do as his son to change the fact that I am his child. But I assure you, as a teenager, there were some moments when my father and I did not have the closest relationship. 
I remember when I turned 16 and I started driving, there was that period where I was driving, but I did not have my own car. And so I would use my parents' vehicle, namely my father's. And my dad had this SUV and I had this friend who lived around this really big turn. And I don't know why it entered my friend and my mind to do this, but we thought one day, I wonder how fast I could take my dad's car around this turn. Right? Why do these thoughts enter teenagers' minds? I'll never know, but I had this thought. And so you know how the story goes, right? We set out to take this turn. I get up to 60, 70, 73. And before I can get past 73, there's this bam! When the car slams into the curb, I still remember looking in the back seat and seeing my friend go, <laughs> as he went flying across the vehicle and his face slammed up against the window. Still remember that. And I looked around and I thought, we've survived miraculously. We're okay. Like I'm whole, he's whole, we're okay. But there was one little hitch in the giddy up. The car began to make this noise. And if you would go faster, it would go faster. It would get faster and faster. And so I went and hung out with my friend that day and I came back home and it was late at nine and I pulled in the driveway and I did what every teenager would do in that situation. I pulled it in the driveway, didn't say anything and hoped it would go away. (laughs) The next day, my dad left for work and I got a phone call. And he said, Spencer, um, the car is making this funny noise. Do you know anything about that? Now, how I answer that question next is going to have a lot to do with my mortal life and my wholeness. And I think I said something like, well, what noise are you talking about? And I tried to be obscure. And my dad moved from asking me a question to commanding me to answer. You ever heard that shift? Son, what did you do to the car? And so at that point, I confessed. Apparently what had happened, I had been going so fast that when I bumped the curb, I bent the axle on the back of the vehicle. The guys at the mechanic dealer were like, we don't know how your son did this and is still alive. It's still a miracle. But that car made that noise for the rest of our time with it as a family. My dad spent thousands of dollars, spent lots of time trying to fix it, but there was nothing. And so every time we would ride in the car, there was this kind of experience I had (laughs) where my dad would be driving and somebody would look at us. You could see people looking at us that we would drive by and he would just look in the rearview mirror and look at me. Now, here's what you can know. Through that entire saga, I never stopped being my father's son. Not one time. My DNA, my blood, although he wanted to shed my blood, my blood was his. I was his son. But I can assure you that after thousands of dollars spent at the the auto dealership, after the embarrassment and shame of driving through Memphis without sound, there were some moments when we didn't have the closest of relationships. And what I want you to know is your relationship with God is exactly the same way. You can do nothing, nothing, not one thing to change your spiritual DNA. We sang a moment ago about the blood of Jesus, didn't we? The blood of Christ has been applied to your account by faith. And when God looks at you, he looks at his son or daughter. But with 
in that relationship, my sin can make me feel internally distant from the Lord. I can feel estranged from him. I can feel like he's far away from me. Sin has that effect. It doesn't change my position in Christ. It can change my experience of Christ. So what is David doing? David is calling us by example to pray that God would miraculously restore our longing for him. But he's also praying that God would restore our closeness to him. I wonder if there are some of us today that have done things this past week, maybe even today, that we not only need to confess to the Lord, but we need to pray, God, would you heal me of the effects of this sin internally? God, would you, would you heal me from feeling like I'm far away from you? Now, to be clear, there, there are moments and times when we go through dark valleys, we go through depressing situations, we go through discouragement. But it is not wrong, according to Psalm 51, for us to pray, God, would you restore this? I love verse 12. Did you see that? He says, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. That sustained by giving a willing spirit is that kind of internal kind of surgery God, he's asking God to do on him. But I love that phrase, restore the joy of your salvation. Another way to say that is, God, make your grace more than a theory to me. Make your grace alive to me again. When I was in eighth grade, there was a little girl in our school that had developed cancer and um, the whole school began to pray for her and it was discovered that a bone marrow transplant was the only way she was going to get better. And so her sister agreed to perform this procedure and it kind of was a school-wide thing. I went to a Christian school in eighth grade and, and so we prayed for her and the teachers would explain what a bone marrow transplant was and how serious it was because both of these young ladies went to our school. And so as I was thinking about this, I, I looked up bone marrow transplant. And this is what um, website I found on the internet says about a bone marrow transplant. It says it's the transplantation of stem cells, usually derived from bone marrow or blood or the umbilical cord. It may be done through the patient's own stem cells or stem cells from a donor or from an identical twin. Stem cell transplant is most often performed for patients with certain cancers of blood or bone marrow, such as multiple myeloma or leukemia. In these cases, the recipient's immune system is usually destroyed with radiation or chemotherapy before the transplantation. Uh, This kind of stem cell transplant remains a dangerous procedure with many possible complications, but it is reserved for patients with life-threatening diseases. Now, the reason I read that is because for me, when I read that, I'll read that for information. I understand the facts of what I just read. But for someone that has lived through a bone marrow transplant, what I just read is more than just words, right? If you've gone through that, or you have a family member, a loved one that you know that has gone through this procedure, what I just read is more than just facts and statistics. It's your life. It's real for you because you've walked through that and you've experienced it. That's exactly what David's praying about grace. He's saying, when I talk about Jesus, when I talk about the the goodness of God's grace, I want it to be more than just words on a page, I want it to be more than just facts and figures. I want it to be real to me. 
Oh God, would you restore the joy, the excitement, the vibrancy of God's word and his truth about his grace. If we're going to experience real healing and forgiveness that Jesus offers, we need to pray. Pray first that God would reverse the internal consequences to our sin. But the second thing this passage talks about is the horizontal consequence. You see, when I sin, it doesn't just affect me. It also affects those around me. If you've been reading through the Bible with us this year, you know that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, the Bible gives an incredible declaration about David's popularity when he first became king. It says literally that David, in the eyes of the people, could do no wrong, that he did everything right in their eyes. And one of the reasons why I believe David's sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah was so damaging for him is because it not only damaged his relationship with God, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but I think he lost incredible credibility with the people. When the people of Israel saw David abusing his power and authority, I think he lost a lot of chips with the people. And consequently, it's my theory. This is just a theory. But your pastor's theory is that one of the reasons why Absalom was able to mount such an easy rebellion is because David's credibility had been hurt because of what he had done with Bathsheba and Uriah. So we know that David's sin affected the people, but listen to how he prays that God would reverse the harmful effects of his sin with others and restore them in a positive and a, a way that would be a blessing. Look at verse 13. He says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. David says, God, listen, I want my sin, what I've done, to be an opportunity, an opportunity for me to teach people about you. I want my sin to be something that opens a door to help others learn about who you are. Not just learn information, mind you. Verse 13 ends with, he's praying that sinners, other people that are rebelling in their sin, will repent, will come back to you. This is similar to what Jesus prayed over Peter. You remember the apostle Peter when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, never, I'll never do that. And Jesus says, before the rooster crows, you're going to do it, Peter. It's going to happen. But then Jesus, in the midst of talking about this, says, Peter, I want you to know that though Satan has asked you to sift you like wheat, though Satan has asked to tempt you, I've prayed for you. And what I've prayed for you is that when you're restored, do you remember what Jesus says? When you're restored, you'll encourage your brothers. You'll encourage other people. Even though you're gonna deny me, Peter, I'm praying that through this tragic set of circumstances, you'll be better positioned to encourage others. And Acts bears that out, right? When you get to the book of Acts, Peter preaches these thundering sermons in which thousands of people come to know Christ. The guy that was denying Jesus chapters earlier is now proclaiming God boldly and with power. This is the same kind of picture here. David's saying, listen, I don't want you just to restore me for me. God, would you restore me so that I can be a part of your plan to invest the goodness of the gospel in others? Skip down to verse 18. This is why he prays, for the city of Jerusalem. Look at verses 18 and 19 and see this theme developed. He says, In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. 
then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. The walls of Jerusalem were synonymous with peace, with stability of the community. And David's saying, look, I know my sin as king has affected this city, has affected this nation, but God, would you restore Israel? Would you bless this nation? And this is the principle that I think David's living out for us, and this is what I want you to hear. Every moment of confession of our sin is an opportunity to invest in other people. What David is illustrating is that every time I confess my sin to God, he convicts me, I confess it to him, I ask for forgiveness. Every moment of confession in my life is also an opportunity to invest the goodness of the gospel in others. I remember September 11th, 2001, when planes were flown into buildings in our country and a heinous act of terrorism was committed and thousands of Americans were killed. It was a sobering experience. But I remember how many of my friends who were moved by that, the frustration and the sadness and the despair of that, were quick to enlist in the military. There was this kind of shared experience we had as a nation of fear and discouragement that moved people to act. It moved many people to enlist and to go be a part of the solution to what had happened in our country. When you and I share our sin with others, when we share how we've confessed something to God and and he's healed us, when I share that with you, I'm appealing to you. I'm encouraging you to enter into the fight against your sin. You see, when I tell you that I've confessed my sin to God and he's healed me, it reminds the people around me that they need to be doing the same thing. In the same way that 9-11 was the shared experience that moved people to act, our confession of our sin becomes this shared experience that moves and motivates people to act. I think the reason this is critical for our church and for any church that claims Christ is we've got to remember that we are not just passing on a message to people. We are also passing on our lives. And let me be clear, you cannot share the gospel without explaining our sin, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and people's desperate need to respond. You must share the truth of the gospel if people are going to come to know the God of the gospel. But we should not limit what we're sharing to people just to be our words. We're also telling them, this has changed my life. This has changed how I live my life. This has changed not just my life in the moment when I prayed to receive Christ as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 25-year-old. No, no, no. The goodness of God's grace is continuing to change my life. See, the gospel is not something we just profess with our words. The gospel is also something that's demonstrated in a transformed life. You ever seen those products on television that require demonstration? Um, There was a product a few years that came out called Flex Tape. And uh, 
It's this black tape, right, where they have this commercial where this guy's got these huge vats of water and they punch holes in them and he shows how in slow motion the tape will, uh, even in water, seal this huge hole. You may not remember that part, but, but the more kind of interesting part was where he takes this saw and he cuts this boat in half. I don't know how many of you have seen this. He cuts this boat in half from top to bottom. He then takes the tape tapes the boat back up, and then they have him on the water in this taped up boat going across the water, no problem. Now, whether next week the thing sinks to the bottom of the ocean, you know, we don't know. But in that moment, he's demonstrating how incredible that tape is. Now, here's the point. It doesn't work just for that guy to say, well, this flex tape can seal any hole. This flex tape can even bring a boat that I saw back together together so that you can go across the water. That commercial works because he actually demonstrates how it happens in real life. What I want you to know is we must proclaim the truth of God's word. But what David's example here in this prayer shows us is that we also must show people and share with people how God is changing us right now. If we believe the gospel is alive and true and life-changing, it better show up in how we talk about our own lives. How are you doing in that? How are you doing as you share with other people? Is there a, a clear openness you have to share the goodness of what God's doing in your life right now? Is there a willingness on your part to share about how God's convicted you of your sin and how you've confessed that to him and he's healed you? I'll make this statement. I cannot be effective in my investment of others if I am unwilling to confess my own struggle with my sin. This is really important for us as a church. Because we have made it our aim. Our target on the wall for success is disciple making. Guiding people to multiplying impact for Christ's kingdom. But let's be clear about what we're seeing to multiply. We're not just multiplying words. This person passed on words or this person passed on words who passed on words. We are passing on transformation of a person's life. You can't do that without words. You can't do that without the truth. But the truth shows up in my life through transformation. What I'm saying, sweet people, is what I want more than anything as your pastor is when we make disciples that we're not just passing on words. We're not just passing on church activity. We're actually passing on a real and vibrant relationship with God, which includes confession and repentance of our sin. This is also hugely important for parents those of us that have kids living in our home who are watching us, listening to us. Is there a willingness, parents, you have in your life to confess your sin even to your kids? Is there a willingness in your life to say, mommy sinned, daddy messed up, so that your children realize that the gospel is not just for them, but it's also for you? You see, where I really see my parenting come to life. And for example, in the child, in the life of my oldest son, who is a believer, is when I say to him, see, daddy has the same struggle you do with his words. Daddy has the same fight going on in his life with his sin. 
if we don't do that, parents, we make our kids buy into some caricature of Christianity that it's always perfect. I never make mistakes and I'm always great. Parents, we need to be people who are willing to see our sin and our confession of our sin to God as an opportunity that verse 13 says to teach rebellious your ways and to see sinners return to God. If we're going to experience real healing and forgiveness as a people, we not only confess our sin to God, we pray for reversal of internal consequences of our sin, but we also pray for reversal of horizontal consequence. Thirdly and finally, we see in this passage a reversal of vertical consequence. Vertical consequences of our sin. Look at verses 14 and 15 and how David talks about a pattern of God saving him and restoring him to praise. Verse 14, Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The pattern here is David saying, look, God, if you will deliver me, you'll heal me from my sin. It won't just be for me. I want it to see me praise God who you are and how good you are. Save me from bloodshed and the guilt of that. I'll sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and I'll declare your praise. But what's hinted at here is that David is not just going to praise God in a general way. What David implies is that his praise is going to be very specific about God's healing and forgiveness of him in this particular situation. So this is the principle, okay? How specific, the specificity of your praise will drive the vibrancy of your praise, okay? The specificity of your gratitude will drive the vibrancy of your gratitude. Let me give you an example. If I say to this pretty little blonde here in the front row, I love you and am thankful for you, Shelly. That's a nice statement, right? It's an encouraging sentiment, but it's not all that specific. If on the other hand, I say, and I've asked Shelly's permission to do what I'm about to do, so just, you know, bear with me. If I say, I love the way you laugh. I love the fact that when my wife laughs, when she really gets tickled, she loses her breath. You guys seen people do this? Where they can't talk, they get so tickled, it just kind of gets all over them. One of the most beautiful sounds to me as a human being is hearing my wife laugh. If I say, I'm thankful for you, but I'm, I'm more than just thankful, I'm thankful for the way that Shelly loves my daughter when she loses her mind and goes crazy town on us. I'm thankful that she's able to remain calm and get down on an eye level with Paige and calm her down and help her and guide her. I've just moved from saying some general things about Shelly and how much I love and I'm thankful for her to some very specific things, right? What David's hinting at here is that he wants God to free him up, to not praise God in a general way of God, I love you or you're great, but to say, God, I'm thankful that you've saved me from this sin in my life. God, thank you for healing me from the incredibly heinous acts that I committed as king. That's what David is saying. He's saying, God, would you restore me in such a way that I can praise you for what you've done for me? But to be clear, David wants us to understand that this kind of praise is not just an outward expression. It's not just mere sentiment of words. It's meant to flow from a humble heart. Look at what he says in verse 16 and 17, and with this we'll be done. He says, you don't want a sacrifice or I would give it You are not pleased with a burnt offering. 
The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, O God. What David is not saying is that sacrifices were unimportant. They were commanded by God. They were part of their worship that pointed them to their need for a savior and to the seriousness of their sin. He is saying that God is not interested in hypocritical praise. God, you're not interested in me singing songs with my words while my heart is far from you. David says that the type of real praise that God is looking for is a humble and broken heart. This is a person who has no self-will or hard-heartedness. This is a person who wants to lay down in desperation before God and say, God, I desperately, desperately need you. And this is the idea. This is the principle. Real confession and forgiveness of our sin always, always shows up in a humble heart. What we're asking God to do is he restores us internally, vertically, horizontally. God, would you give me this humble heart of desperation for you. One of my mentors is a guy named John Marshall. He was a pastor in Missouri. He still pastors, but he's retired. And one of the things he and I would talk about, it was his ministry he had to pastors who had fallen. He would seek out men who had fallen in their ministry or been fired, and he would take them to lunch and try to encourage them. And he would always tell me, he would say, Spencer, I can know within about two minutes if the guy I'm sitting across from the table is going to really learn from this. And he said, if, if that person I'm talking to is talking about how the church is so bad, how the people wronged him, how he was going to do better the next time, how he was going to jump to the next opportunity, I know that this person's not really going to learn from what's happened to them. But if on the other hand, in the first two minutes, this person in humility and brokenness is quiet before the Lord, stills their heart, totally owns their mistakes, their failings, expresses just gently and kindly with tears their hurt. Dr. Marsh would always tell me that guy, that person is going to learn from what's happened to him. What God is looking for from us is not emotion, jumping up and down, saying all the right things, going through the motions. What God is looking for in you and in me is a humble, broken heart. Amen. See, it's, it's incredibly powerful to consider that God can see beyond all the outward actions in our lives. He can see beyond our songs, our words, and he can cut right to the quick to see what's really going on in our hearts. When we confess our sin to God and when we plead to feel the assurance of forgiveness, part of what we are equally praying for is for God to give us a humble, broken spirit that says, God, whatever you want to do in me through this, do it. God, however you want to use this situation, as painful and as difficult as it is, God, do what you think is right and is good. I just confess to you, church, how, how often I think I know better than God. Anybody else been there? God, you need to do this. You need to do that. God, if you would just fix this, everything would, would work out. 
But a humble and broken heart says, God, you know what is best. You're sovereign, you're over all things. And if you've chosen not to fix this, not to change this, God, I trust you and accept that you're working in a way that I don't fully understand. Heard somebody say it this way one time, God is doing about 50,000 things at every moment. You and I are aware of about three of them. God, I trust that you are working all things for my good and for your glory. One of the ways God has taught me through this series on the Psalms is that we as a church need to regularly prioritize confession of our sin. That one of the things that should be happening in corporate worship as a body is giving an opportunity for you and for me to confess our sin to God as a people. And before you get nervous, I'm not going to pass the mic around and ask you to confess your sin individually. But we as a people are called to confess our sin to the Father. And so what I'm going to do as I close this message this morning is I'm just going to ask you in just a moment in the stillness of your heart to bow your heads in just a moment with me. And I'm going to take the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, these elements In just a moment, I'm going to voice a prayer to God that I'm going to ask you to make your own with me, that we would just as a people collectively say to God, God, we have failed. We have not done what we should. We agree with you, God, that you are right, you are holy, and we are wrong. But as we pray this prayer of confession, we also come to remember the assurance of our forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me right where you are, every head bowed, every eyes closed?